Chapter Twenty Two of The Girl in the Golden Atom by Ray Cummings. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Trial. In a few moments more, the storm had passed completely. Only the wet city streets, the mist over the lake, and the moist warmth of the air remained. For some time, the three visitors to this extraordinary world stood silent at the latticed windows, awed by what they had seen. The noise of the panels as the chemist slid them back brought them to themselves. "'A curious land, gentlemen,' he remarked quietly. "'It's... it's weird,' the very young man ejaculated. The chemist led them out across the roof to its other side facing the city. The street upon which the house stood sloped upward over the hill behind. It was wet with the rain and gleamed like a sheet of burnished silver, and down its sides now ran two little streams of liquid silver fire. The street, deserted during the storm, was beginning to fill again with people returning to their tasks. At the intersection with the next road above, they could see a line of sleighs passing. Beneath them, before the wall of the garden, a little group of men stood talking. On a rooftop nearby, a woman appeared with a tiny naked infant, which she sat down to nurse in the corner of her garden. "'The city at work,' said the chemist, with a wave of his hand. "'Shall we go down and see it?' His three friends assented readily, the very young man, suggesting promptly that they first visit Lilda's father and Aura. "'He is teaching Lotto this morning,' said the chemist, smiling. Why not go to the court? suggested the big businessman. Is the public admitted? asked the doctor. Nothing is secret here, the chemist answered. By all means, we will go to the court first, if you wish. Lilda should be through very shortly. The court of Arite stood about a mile away near the lake shore. As they left the house and passed through the city streets, the respect accorded the chemist became increasingly apparent. The three strangers with him attracted considerable attention, for although they wore the conventional robes in which the more prominent citizens were generally attired, their short hair and pallid whiteness of their skins made them objects of curiosity. No crowd gathered. Those they passed stared a little, raised their hands to their foreheads, and went their way. Yet, underneath these signs of respect, there was with some an air of sullenness, of hostility, that the visitors could not fail to notice. The Oroid men in street garb were dressed generally in a short metallic-looking tunic of drab, with a brighter colored girdle. The women, most of them, wore only a sort of skirt reaching from the waist to knees. A few had circular discs covering their breasts. There were hardly any children to be seen, except occasionally a little face staring at them from a window or peering down from a rooftop. Once or twice they passed a woman with an infant slung across her back in a sort of hammock. The most common vehicle was the curious form of sleigh in which they had ridden down through the tunnels. They also saw a few little two-wheeled carts with wheels that appeared to be of a solid segment of tree-trunk. 
All the vehicles were drawn by meek-looking little gray animals, like a small deer without horns. The courthouse of Arite, though a larger building, from the outside was hardly different than most others in this city. It was distinct, however, in having on either side of the broad doorway that served as its main entrance a large square stone column. As they entered, passing a guard who saluted them respectfully, the visitors turned from a hallway and ascended a flight of steps. At the top, they found themselves on a balcony overlooking the one large room that occupied almost the entire building. The balcony ran around all three sides. The room was triangular in shape and was railed with a low stone parapet. On it were perhaps fifty people, sitting quietly on stone benches that lay close up behind the parapet. An attendant stood at each of the corners of the balcony. The one nearest bowed low as the chemist and his companions entered silently and took their seats. From the balcony, the entire room below was in plain view. At the apex of its triangle sat the judge on a raised dais of white stone with a golden canopy over it. He was a man about fifty, this leader of the court, garbed in a long, loose robe of white. His hair that fell on his shoulders was snowy white, and around his forehead was a narrow white band. He held in his hand a sort of scepter of gold with a heavy golden triangle at its end. In six raised tiers of unequal length, like a triangular flight of stairs, Across the angle of the room and directly in front of the judge was the jury, twenty men and twenty women, seated in alternate rows. The men wore loose robes of gray, the women robes of blue. On a seat raised slightly above the others sat a man who evidently was speaker for the men of the jury. On a similar elevated seat was the woman speaker. This latter was Lilda. Near the center of the room, facing the judge and jury, were two triangular spaces about twenty feet across, enclosed with a breast-high wall of stone. Within each of these enclosures were perhaps ten or twelve people seated on small stone benches. Directly facing the members of the jury and between them and the two enclosures was a small platform raised about four feet above the floor with several steps leading up to it from behind. A number of attendants dressed in the characteristic short tunics, with breastplates and a short sword hanging from their waist, stood near the enclosures and along the sides of the room. The chemist leaned over and whispered to his friends, "'Those two enclosed places in the center are for the witnesses. Over there are those testifying for the accused.' The others are witnesses for the government. The platform is where the accused stands when... He broke off suddenly. An expectant hush seemed to run over the room. A door at the side opened, and preceded and followed by two attendants, a man entered, who walked slowly across the floor and stood alone upon the raised platform facing the jury. He was a man of extraordinarily striking look and demeanor. He stood considerably over six feet in height, with a remarkably powerful yet lean body. He was naked, except for a cloth breech-clout 
girdled about his loins. His appearance was not that of an Oroid, for beside his greater height and more muscular physique, his skin was distinctly of a more brownish hue. His hair was cut at the base of the neck in Oroid fashion. It was black, with streaks of silver running through it. His features were large and cast in a rugged mold. His mouth was cruel and wore now a sardonic smile. He stood erect, with head thrown back and arms folded across his breast, calmly facing the men and women who were to judge him. The very young man gripped the chemist by the arm. "'Who is that?' he whispered. The chemist's lips were pressed together. He seemed deeply affected. "'I did not know they caught him,' he answered softly. "'It must have been just this morning.' The very young man looked at Lilda. Her face was placid, but her breast was rising and falling more rapidly than normal, and her hands in her lap were tightly clenched. The judge began speaking quietly, amid a death-like silence. For over five minutes he spoke, once he was interrupted by a cheer, instantly stifled, and once by a murmur of dissent from several spectators on the balcony that called forth instant rebuke from the attendant stationed there. The judge finished his speech and raised his golden scepter slowly before him. As his voice died away, Lilda rose to her feet, and facing the judge, bowed low with hands to her forehead. Then she spoke a few words, evidently addressing the women before her. Each of them raised her hands and answered in a monosyllable, as though affirming an oath. This performance was repeated by the men. The accused still stood silent, smiling sardonically. Suddenly his voice rasped out with a short, ugly intonation, and he threw his arms straight out before him. A murmur rose from the spectators, and several attendants leaned forward towards the platform. But the man only looked around at them contemptuously and again folded his arms. From one of the enclosures a woman came and mounted the platform beside the man. The chemist whispered, His wife, she is going to speak for him. But with a muttered exclamation and a wave of his arms, the man swept her back, and without a word, she descended the steps and re-entered the railed enclosure. Then the man turned, and raising his arms, spoke angrily to those seated in the enclosure. Then he appealed to the judge. The chemist whispered in explanation, He refuses any witnesses. At a sign from the judge, the enclosure was opened, and its occupants left the floor, most of them taking seats upon the balcony. Who is he? the very young man wanted to know, but the chemist ignored his question. For perhaps ten minutes the man spoke, obviously, in his own defense. His voice was deep and powerful, yet he spoke now seemingly without anger and without an air of pleading. In fact, his whole attitude seemed one of irony and defiance. Abruptly, he stopped speaking, and silence again fell over the room. A man and a woman left the other enclosure and mounted the platform beside the accused. They seemed very small and fragile, as he towered over them, looking down at them sneeringly. The man and woman conferred a moment in whispers, 
Then the woman spoke. She talked only a few minutes, interrupted twice by the judge, once by a question from Lilda, and once by the accused himself. Then, for perhaps ten minutes more, her companion addressed the court. He was a man considerably over middle age, and evidently, from his dress and bearing, a man of prominence in the nation. At one point in his speech, it became obvious that his meaning was not clearly understood by the jury. Several of the women whispered together, and one rose and spoke to Lilda. She interrupted the witness with a quiet question. Later, the accused himself questioned the speaker until silenced by the judge. Following this witness came two others. Then the judge rose, and looking up to the balcony where the chemist and his companions were sitting, motioned to the chemist to descend to the floor below. The very young man tried once again with his whispered question, What is it? But the chemist only smiled, and, rising quietly, left them. There was a stir in the courtroom as the chemist crossed the main floor. He did not ascend the platform with the prisoner, but stood beside it. He spoke to the jury quietly, yet with a suppressed power in his voice that must have been convincing. He spoke only a moment more with the impartial attitude of one who gives advice than as a witness. When he finished, he bowed to the court and left the floor, returning at once to his friends upon the balcony. Following the chemist, after a moment of silence, the judge briefly addressed the prisoner, who stolidly maintained his attitude of ironic defiance. "'He's going to ask the jury to give its verdict now,' said the chemist in a low voice. Lilda and her companion leader rose and faced their subordinates, and, with a verbal monosyllable from each member of the jury, the verdict was unhesitatingly given. As the last juryman's voice died away, there came a cry from the back of the room. A woman tore herself loose from the attendants holding her, and running swiftly across the room, leaped upon the platform. She was a slight little woman, almost a child in appearance, beside the man's gigantic stature. She stood looking at him a moment, with heaving breast and great sorrowful eyes, from which the tears were welling out and flowing down her cheeks unheeded. The man's face softened. He put his hands gently upon the sides of her neck. Then, as she began sobbing, he folded her in his great arms. For an instant she clung to him. Then he pushed her away. Still crying softly, she descended from the platform and walked slowly back across the room. Hardly had she disappeared when there arose from the street outside a faint, confused murmur as of an angry crowd gathering. The judge had left his seat now, and the jury was filing out of the room. The chemist turned to his friends. Shall we go? he asked. This trial, began the big businessman, you haven't told us its significance. This man, good God, what a figure of power and hate and evil. Who is he? It must have been evident to you, gentlemen, the chemist said quietly, that you have been witnessing an event of the utmost importance to us all. I have to tell you of the crisis facing us. This trial is its latest development. That man... 
The insistent murmur from the street grew louder. Shouts arose, and then a loud pounding from the side of the building. The chemist broke off abruptly and rose to his feet. "'Come outside,' he said. They followed him through a doorway onto a balcony overlooking the street. Gathered before the courthouse was a crowd of several hundred men and women. They surged up against its entrance angrily and were held in check there by the armed attendants on guard. A smaller crowd was pounding violently upon a side door of the building. Several people ran shouting down the street, spreading the excitement through the city. The chemist and his companions stood in the doorway of the balcony an instant, silently regarding this ominous scene. The chemist was just about to step forward when, upon another balcony, near the corner of the building, a woman appeared. She stepped close to the edge of the parapet and raised her arms commandingly. It was Lilda. She had laid aside her court robe and stood now in her glistening silver tunic. Her hair was uncoiled and fell in dark masses over her white shoulders, blowing out behind her in the wind. The crowd hesitated at the sight of her and quieted a little. She stood rigid as a statue for a moment, holding her arms outstretched. Then, dropping them with a gesture of appeal, she began to speak. At the sound of her voice, clear and vibrant, yet soft, gentle, and womanly, there came silence from below, and after a moment every face was upturned to hers. Gradually her voice rose in pitch. Its gentle tone was gone now. It became forceful, commanding. Then again she flung out her arms with a dramatic gesture and stood rigid, every line of her body denoting power, almost imperious command. Abruptly she ceased speaking, and as she stood motionless, slowly at first, the crowd silently dispersed. The street below was soon clear. Even those onlookers at a distance turned the corner and disappeared. Another moment passed, and then Lilda swayed and sank upon the floor of the balcony, with her head on her arms against its low stone railing, just a tired, gentle, frightened little woman. She did it. How wonderfully she did it, the very young man murmured in admiration. We can handle them now, answered the chemist, but each time it is harder. Let us get Lilda and go home, gentlemen. I want to tell you all about it. He turned to leave the balcony. Who was that man? What was he tried for? The very young man demanded. That trial was the first of its kind ever held, the chemist answered. The man was condemned to death. It was a new crime, the gravest we have ever had to face. The crime of treason. End of chapter 22